And we talked last week, we introduced the topic uh, about how God equips us to reach out. Last week, we talked about the why God equips us to reach out. And when I say reach out, I want to use that phrase uh, where we all understand it. When I say reach out, I'm talking about us as Christians reaching out to people that aren't Christians, loving on them, teaching them, uh, urging them along toward Jesus. That's something that we are called to do. We call that evangelism. Evangelism for some churches is a dreaded topic. Uh, it's not really here at the crossings because we talk about it all the time. And because we're a church that's full of new believers. We've got a lot of new Christians here. We're a church plant. We've got an active campus ministry at SIUE. We've got active uh, adult ministries, men's, women's, uh, teen ministries. Guys, we interact with a lot of people in the community. We study the Bible with a lot of people that are investigating faith. And in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of people come to faith. And so we've got a group here of uh, a lot of baby believers. And, and God is going to do something, I think, amazing with this church. We have visions of planting churches. Guys, we're in the middle of uh, laying the groundwork for a rehab. We're talking with donors this next week about getting that funded, getting it lifted off the ground. Um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities and things taking place uh, in the next few years where we're going to be building a lot. Uh, we're looking and talking to the banks about finishing out this facility here. Uh, we're going to finish these auditoriums and turn these into usable spaces. We're going to do some stuff outside, make uh, some usable spaces outside where if you guys like basketball and stuff, we're hoping to build a court and some other things just to provide space for us to rub elbows with people because we really believe God wants us to love people. And these opportunities we can create to rub elbows is going to be important. God has a heart for this world. He's got a heart for the lost around us, and he wants to use us to make a difference. So like I've said, last week we said why we're committed to sharing our faith. We looked at several reasons. You've got some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, uh, it's going to have most of the scriptures we're going to look at on there. If you don't have a bulletin, you can raise your hand. We'll have somebody bring that to you. You're going to want that. Um, it's got, uh, like I said, the scriptures and also an opportunity for you to write some stuff down. Um, but last week, just to reiterate, why do we reach out? Why are we concerned with reaching out? Well, followers of Christ should live to please Christ. That's first and foremost where this all starts. Whenever you say, I'm going to become a Christian or I'm going to become a disciple, life is no longer about me. It's about pleasing him. That's really my first goal. And God, Jesus, said we need to go out and, and love on people and reach out to people. So we do this to please him. Secondly, we also want to be like him. Jesus was all about reaching the lost. He even says that uh, in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Uh, he says in another passage, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. I'm coming into this world to reach this lost, broken world. These people that are going to be lost without me, I'm going to come in here. That's his heart. If we are his disciples, we need to reflect that heart. We should love people like Christ, thirdly. And lastly, we're more blessed by sharing. Like the, the most selfish thing we can do is, in one sense, to be really, really loving people. Because what Jesus says is you get more by giving. So when I'm a person that's a giver, I'm actually going to get from that uh, all kinds of good reasons why to reach out. Okay? This week, we're going to talk about how. How do we equip you to reach out? here at the Crossings Church. How do we do that? Uh, so let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into that topic today, okay? Father, as we open your word and we talk about evangelism, man, it's one of those topics uh, that we talk about all the time here at the church because we live it. Uh, and that's not to pat ourselves on the back, Lord. It's just when you're grateful, when, when you've been saved from that lostness, it's easy to turn around and tell somebody else. And we've been blessed here at the crossings. We have a lot of people uh, who know what it feels like to be lost and, and know what it feels like to be found. And they're willing to share it. Uh, but God, I want to pray that uh, you will help us as, as I teach this morning for your word to pierce our hearts. God, where we need to repent, I pray we will repent. Where we just need greater understanding, maybe of why we do things the way we do them here, I pray we'll get that understanding seeing that this is, this is really your idea. Uh, Lord, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so how the crossings equips members to share their faith. How do we do that? 
Let me say, first of all, this is a relationally driven thing. Uh, this comes right out of the Bible, guys. How did Jesus equip his followers to make an impact in the world? It says in Mark 3, 13 through 15. This is from the ministry of Jesus. This is before he actually went out and started his public ministry. This is one of the first things he did. It says Jesus went up on a mountainside and he called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Okay, I want you to pay close attention here. It says he called to him those he wanted that they might be with him. Circle that. Be with him. And then he might send them out to preach. There's a rhythm that's here. Now, guys, this is super duper simple, okay? Super duper simple. We make things super duper complicated sometimes in church circles. This is not one of those things that should be that complicated. Jesus called these guys to him, which these young men, these 12, these are young men. Uh, sometimes in our minds, whenever we're thinking about the 12 apostles, we think old gray hair. Well, whenever Jesus initially call, called them, they were probably most of them teenagers, like, like older teenagers. Peter might have been the oldest. Uh, he might have been a little older than these other guys because he was a business owner, and we all know he had some preeminence among them, and it may just have been because he was like 25, and the others were like 18, you know what I mean? And so these are young men that we're talking about here. So Jesus' plan for changing the world is he calls 12 young men to be with him. To be with him, okay? Now, what's it mean when, it, when we think about their being with him? They were with him for three years. What do we know about their interactions with Jesus during those three years? We know that they, they were with him when he was walking. How much did they walk? They walked a lot. They got their steps in, right? They got their steps in. What do you think they did on the road while they were walking? What do you think? You think they might have talked? They weren't just silent the whole time? Yeah. I think they might have talked. Do you think they might have cut up every once in a while? What do young men like to do? Be stupid. I bet they were stupid. I bet you if any one of us were with them, we probably would have laughed. It's some of the stupid things they did on the road. Can you imagine walking 50 miles with 12 teenagers? They're going to do some dumb stuff on the road. It's probably going to be funny. Now, now Jesus is, you know, he's 30. He's the old man in this group. It's kind of like the crossings. Sometimes people come into the crossings that have a few gray hairs and they look around and they say, where are the others like me? Listen. We don't want to run you off. We need more of y'all, okay? So if you're feeling that way this morning, don't leave. We need you. Uh, the Bible talks about older people leading younger people. We need help. Come on. Um, Jesus is the old man with these guys. They're going from town to town. How, how well do you think these guys knew Jesus? Do you think this was like a typical... Uh, pastoral kind of relationship in a church. There's a bunch of you guys here that don't know me very well. Like there's enough of you here, uh, especially the way we're split. Like we've got Jake kind of leading, working with the college students. There's a lot of you that are, you really don't know me very well. Uh, if you got to know me very well, some of the stuff that I say to you on Sundays, you would hear very differently. Because when you know somebody's heart, and you know that they love you, there's, there's a trust that you, you hear things differently from them, right? When there's that relationship. It's not like a business kind of relationship. With Jesus, it wasn't like a business with these guys. They knew it. Now, they heard a rebuke a little bit different from him, too. You know, when you hear a rebuke from somebody that knows all your business, you hear that rebuke a little bit differently than maybe somebody that doesn't know you very well. Rebuke if you don't know. That's just, you tell somebody they're wrong about something. How many of you like it when that happens? I love it. I love being told I'm wrong. Come tell me I'm wrong. I just like, no, I'm just kidding. I don't like that. Why? We all want to be right. But if somebody that really loves you and you know they really loved you come and tells you you're wrong about something, you're going to hear that a little bit differently from 
some dude you don't know. There, there's a relationship that's there. Whenever it says that they were with him, we can read over that. We can read over that and miss the point. Guys, I'm not trying to be crude. They knew what it sounded like when Jesus passed gas. That was the level of relationship that they had. Like they were with him enough that he was one of the boys with them. But he was more than just one of the boys. He was more than that. He was a spiritual leader for him, for them. Did you know this was a little bit different than the way spiritual leaders did business back then? It was a little bit different. Like, and even today, guys, sometimes there's this ivory tower mentality that you can get into. Uh, especially if you run around in academic circles. Uh, there, there's like this barrier that exists between the spiritual leader and the people sometimes because they're up here and they know all this secret stuff. And, and I, know the, I know Greek and Hebrew and uh, uh, I know what transubstantiation means. I didn't even say that correctly. Um, I know all these words that you don't know, you know, and it creates this. But that's not what it was like with Jesus, man. He got together with these guys and he had rabbis. They were big shot rabbis in the first century that had PhDs and all that stuff. Paul got to study under some of those. Paul had a PhD equivalent. Uh, he, education's not bad, but a lot of times uh, we can talk in such a way that doesn't communicate truth. You got a guy like Jesus that comes along. What's he, he's talking about like farming. He's putting things in such simple terms like anybody can understand it. You don't have to have a flowery education to get what Jesus is saying. His, the Bible's written on like a fifth grade reading level. Okay, there's a reason for that. It's because Jesus wants us to understand, right? And so um, they're with him for three years. They're with him. Every day they're with him. And then what happens? It says they're with him, and then he sends them out. So these guys, you're telling me, these guys, this little group of guys gets together. These 12 young men get together. They follow this guy around for three years. He's going from town to town. He's talking to them on the road. He's teaching them as they go along. They're seeing him heal. They're seeing him draw crowds. Like over time... Things start to move. There's a movement that emerges. People are now starting to follow. And now there's controversy. And now there's people out to kill him. And these guys are with him witnessing this whole time. And, and they get to the point where you guys know the story. You know what happens, right? He gets arrested. He gets tried. They scatter. He's gone. They come back. They're hiding. Well, he doesn't stay dead. He doesn't stay. He comes back from the grave after the cross. He gets the boys back together. This man that they've known, like their friend. He calls them his friends. They had a teacher-student relationship. They were also, there was a friendship that existed. It, it, it talks about how when he came back from the dead, he opened their mind to the Old Testament scriptures. It says that. And, and suddenly all of this, which, if you don't know, the Bible's all about Jesus. Uh, if you're just learning the whole thing, like if, if you wanted somewhere to start, people say, should I start in Genesis? I say, no, start, start with Jesus. Start, start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Just start learning about Jesus because the whole thing is about him. The whole thing is about him. He opened their mind to the scriptures. They, are, they start to piece together, okay, this, this, the, all, all of this stuff in the Old Testament, all this stuff in our Hebrew Bible, like oh, all this stuff's pointing to him. He helps them see that, and then he sends them out. And these guys go out armed with, I know Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. I know what he's like. I know his motives. I know his heart. They go out. And uh, I also know now how this story fits together. I know how Jesus fits together in this grand narrative. Let me share these scriptures with you and show you how this points to him. Let me show this. To you. And that's what they did. And then what's really cool is, guess what they did with the next generation? 
They did the exact same thing that Jesus did for them. They came and they drew people to be with them. They were with them for a period of time, and then they sent them out. You want to know what we call that? We call that making disciples. That's what making disciples is. If you ever hear us talk about making disciples, that's what it looks like. Uh, if you ever wonder why we're structured here at the crossings the way we're structured, why we do uh, groups the way we do them, why we do leadership the way we do it, where do we get that organizational scheme from? We take it from the scriptures. We take what we see in the scriptures. We take what we see in the ministry of Jesus. That is the how, okay? And so we're going to get into some nuts and bolts of how this morning. Um, but I want you to understand right off the bat, if we're going to be equipped the way that God teaches us to be equipped in the Bible, you have got to understand that is a relationally driven thing. You are not equipped the way God tells you to be equipped in a classroom by itself. That is not the design. Now, that is the way we have tried to make it work uh, in a lot of churches. That, that, that is not the design that we see in Scripture. It is a relationally driven endeavor to equip somebody. It is uh, familial relationships where you know somebody well enough uh, that you, you just know them real well. Okay, that's the idea here. It's not, it's not like a formal, I'm up here, you're down here, listen to me. Or let's have a business meeting once a week where we go and have coffee and, you know, and it's, it's family. It's different. What I'm describing, though, those relationships, you guys, know, you want to know what we call that? Anybody want to guess what we call that? call it the church. That's what the church is meant to be. The church is meant to be a community where you have relationships that are that deep with people that are pursuing God with you. That's what it's supposed to be. That's a healthy church. An unhealthy church is where you don't have those kinds of relationships. And I say that, guys, I'm saying that in all humility. I'm not trying to dog anybody or just down other churches, okay? But if you don't have those relational connections, uh, you are doing a, a social club. You are not doing church. You have got to have those kinds of relationships in order to build the trust you need to really make an impact on the lives of somebody around you. Guys, we can get together in, in a room and say, how you doing? I'm fine all day long and nobody change. But if you get together with people that really know you and how you doing, I'm, I'm not doing so good. Here's why. Or how you doing? I'm fine. Well, no, you're not because I know you. You know, there, there, we have to get past the niceties in order to help people really develop. Now, how many of you grew up with siblings? Okay. Uh, listen, I did too. If you grew up with a sibling that smelled like they crawled out of a dumpster, what are you going to say to that sibling? You stink, right? You're going to tell them. You need to go take care of that. What if, what if, you're, uh, what if you're standing next to somebody you just meet out in public and you don't know them at all? Or, or maybe it's somebody that you know their name and how you doing? I'm fine. You have that kind of relationship. But they come up and, man, they just reek. You just smell like B.O. walking by me. Are you going to say anything to them? No. Probably not. Most of us. Some of, some of you are like, well, I'm a jerk, so I would. Um, no, most people, you'd be polite, right? Why? Because you, you want to be polite. You don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Okay, but what if it's your sibling? Well, they stink, and I'm going to tell them. And we might have a fight, but we'll work it out. Because they're my sibling, right? That's what the church should be like. The church should be full of people that are close enough that if they stink, you tell them they stink. And if they get offended and you have to have an argument about it, you just have an argument about it and you're still their sibling. You work it out. Why? Because you work out conflict. Because that's what families do. Our family's going to fight. Sure, but you know how to work it out. You want to know what people do sometimes when they get mad at somebody at the church? I'm not going to that church anymore. I'm going to the church up the road. 
Wouldn't it be funny if families work like that? Some of you are like, well, mine did. My dad abandoned me. Guys, families were never designed to work like that. And the church was never designed to be a place like that where you can just get mad and leave. Or you don't like something that's taught, so I'm going to go to the church up road because they teach something different. Okay. Guess what? You can find a church that teaches anything. If your standard is my opinion, well, go to the church of you because we got one for you. There's probably four or five right around the corner. They will teach whatever you want them to. Guys, that can't be our standard. Who gets to be the standard? We got to go to the scriptures, right? We got to look at him and we got to be in his family. We got to work stuff out. That is, it's relational. That's what a healthy church is. An unhealthy church is a church where nobody knows each other or where somebody gets mad about something and disconnects and they're gone. Okay? There, there are cold church cultures that are built like that and, and operate like that. We've got to be like a family. We've got to be like a family. A healthy church is going to help me, number one, by encouraging closeness with Jesus. You will not get this in an unhealthy church. A healthy church is going to encourage closeness with Jesus. And here's the thing. Jesus is transformative when we get close to him. He just is. You cannot get close to Jesus with any sort of open heart at all and not have some kind of transformation in your life. That's how he works. (coughs) It says... uh, in uh, Matthew 4.19, this is from the 84 NIV. I like the way uh, they render this. This is really close uh, to the way it's rendered in the original language. He says, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. I like this because he says, I will make you fishers of men. That's actually what the phrase says right there. There are other uh, renditions out there that say this a little differently. This is the best understanding. Jesus is the one that's the actor here. He comes to these guys and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus is the one that's the actor. Their job was to follow. Jesus is going to be the one that makes them into who they need to be. Their job was to follow. Now, we see what happened over the course of of three years. Peter ends up later becoming the rock of the church, the confession. The the confession that Jesus is Lord. Uh, He's the one that makes that proclamation. He's one of the early preachers. But he started out being a guy that followed Jesus. He, didn't, he, he, was a, he was a guy that was blue-collar that owned a fishing company, right? His small business. He becomes one of the great preachers because he was with Jesus. He was made that way by Jesus. Jesus is the actor. It's the same in our lives. Whenever we say, I want to follow Jesus, that's, that's our cause. We need to go do, we need, we need to follow him around. We need to get to know him. I need to learn who he is. I need to learn what he says. I'm going to try to honor him. I'm going to try to do life like he says to do it. That's what it looks like to follow him, right? So I'm going to start following him, and then I'm going to look at my life two or three years later, and I'm going to be in a different place in life because I'm going to be a different person. Because when you start following Jesus, he affects your identity. He affects everything about you. He affects your worldview. Like he becomes the lens through which you see everything else. He affects everything about you if you're following him. That's the way he works. You can't get in proximity with them. So my part in this is I commit completely. That's really my role in this. If I want to be equipped the way God wants to equip me for evangelism, I need to commit. The example of the apostles who believed uh, that there was something about Jesus is that they pulled up their boats on shore. They left everything and they followed him. Whenever he comes and calls uh, Peter and, and Andrew and James and John, they, they drop their nets and they, they just start following him. Because they had heard from John the Baptist, there's something special about this guy. And so they, they committed completely. We've got to be like that. We've got to be people that commit completely. If we're going to do this thing, guys, if you're going to do this Christian thing, just do it all the way. If you're not going to do it all the way, don't do it. If you're going to be half-hearted, that's, that's whole rebellion, Okay. Uh, There's no in the middle. You got to either be all in or all out. That's what baptism is meant to be. It separates the committed from the uncommitted. That's what it's all about. I'm making a public declaration that I'm committing my whole life to Jesus Christ. If you're not willing to make that commitment, don't get baptized. Okay? Wait until you're serious or get serious. Because the consequences of not being serious are serious. Very. You can't be lukewarm. They weren't lukewarm. They pulled up their boats on shore. They left everything. They followed him. 
That call is the same. You say, well, they were apostles. They were special. They were like part of the elite group. I'm not part of the elite group. I'm just part of the uh, everyday uh, vanilla group. Can I say vanilla in this crowd? I don't know if I can without offending someone. Um, I mean it in a derogatory way. I mean vanilla as in very plain. You get it? What Jesus says to the very plain Christians is the same as what he says to the apostles. We know this because, did I just distract you guys? I'm so sorry. Uh, Sometimes I say things that aren't in my notes. Did you guys notice this about me? And I shouldn't. Uh, I shouldn't. It never never works out. Praise God for his grace, right? 2 Thessalonians 2.4. This is Paul writing now to the church. It was to this end that he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain and share in the glory of Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Um, the call is the same for everybody. It's, it's that all of us, through the gospel, should move on to this new life we have in Jesus. There's something, there's a line in the sand that, that God wants to draw in our lives where we look back and say, that was the old me, this is the new me. That was the old me that wasn't committed, this is the new me that's committed. Um, there's, there's a marked difference in our lives. And that should be something that starts whenever we initially make that commitment. But honestly, uh, if development is healthy, that should continue. And, and sometimes we can stall out and we can get stunted in our growth and our development, usually because of some kind of unrepentant sin or some kind of attitude that we won't let go of or some kind of anger. You can get stunted in your growth if you don't continue repenting. So repentance is one of those things that's ongoing. But the call is the same. My point here is the call is the same for everybody. There's not like an elite disciple and then just a regular disciple. And the bar is much lower for the regular disciple. It's the same for everybody. The call is the same for everybody. There's not like a class. Okay. Um, Secondly, a healthy church equips me to share my faith Number two, by providing a learning community. By providing a learning community. Uh, the, the word church in the original language, uh, ecclesia, <clears throat> means gathering. It was, it was not a religious word. It just means gathering. It means gathering of people. Um, and so whenever we say the church is meaning, what we're saying is, the, the gathering is coming together. The community of people is coming together. The church is uh, the people. The church was Jesus's idea. It was always his idea for his followers to gather in a community, in a church. He started it. It was his idea. All of the organizational stuff that we do in the church, we get it from the scriptures. It comes right out of the Bible. God gives us these instructions. We also have historical witness. We, have, uh, we, we know how the church operated, for instance, in the first century. We know some of the dynamics that were present in their groups. We know uh, how they utilized facilities. We know, we know a lot of things about them. We know kind of uh, what, how, what size they were oftentimes. Guys, a lot of people don't know the early church spread primarily from house to house. Most people don't know that. In, in the, you know, whenever we think church, a lot of times because we're conditioned by our culture, we think through the lens of what we've seen our whole lives. 2,000 years ago, the church did not have big, massive church buildings. They had some facilities that they would use from time to time that were good size, like the temple courts. They also had, uh, we've got records where they rented like community centers that were available in the cities. Uh, they often, though, met in homes. More often than not, they met in homes. It says in the book of Acts that the early spread of the church was from house to house. Uh, it was, that's what it says in the text, from house to house. They never stopped sharing the word of God. We go back and sociologically look at how this worked, uh, and it's really interesting. It was a house to house kind of movement. Now, they had gatherings in cities where they, Christians would congregate, but the everyday normal life of the church was often more done around a table in somebody's home than it was in a building with a stage. A lot of people don't know that. They don't understand that our tradition of Christianity is we come from a relationally driven movement of life change. That is a good understanding of what Christianity was and is. Um, 
A learning community is extremely important for your development. Guys, this is God's idea. This was not the Crossing Church. This was not the American Church. This is God's idea. It's interesting that learning communities have been proven to be super effective teaching tools by uh, major educational institutions. For instance, Harvard uh, put out a study not too long ago about the benefits of learning in a diverse community, which, by the way, a healthy church should be diverse. You're going to have a lot of different races. You're going to have different socioeconomic uh, representations there, different uh, lifestyles, jobs. Um, The benefits of learning in a diverse community from Harvard University uh, is that it connects you with people that aren't like you, So you get shared learning because you're rubbing elbows with people that are not like you. Uh, It helps you set goals and measure progress. A learning community uh, provides new opportunities for leaders to develop. Did you guys know leaders do not develop in isolation? Now that's common sense, but sometimes people will have uh, an experience with God and they will feel like God is calling them to do something great in ministry But they never make the connection that they don't know what they're doing and they need somebody to teach them. And so they go through life thinking, God's going to, you need, if you feel like God's calling you to ministry, you need a mentor that's going to tell you how to do that, right? You need that connection. Um, It's not going to happen in isolation. Learning communities also accelerate progress. Now, that's, that's right out of Harvard University, right? That is, uh, started as a Christian institution. They're no longer a Christian institution. They're a secular institution, but highly respected in the scientific community. Um, they are saying the best way to learn is in a learning community, if you want to learn. Guess what the church is meant to be? A church is meant to be a family. The church is also meant to be a learning community. Just like a family, your family is a learning community. Your kid comes out and it can't take care of itself. You teach it to feed itself. You teach it to go to the bathroom. You teach it to wipe, right? If you still have to do that when they're 40, something's wrong. There's a learning process, right? There's a learning community. It's the same with us, right? You have new baby believers that come in, and they're taught and they learn over time. It's, it's a family. It's a family. There's development. Um, Mark 3.14, Jesus went up on a mountainside. He called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. He appointed 12. The size is important, too. He appointed 12, not 1,200. Whenever Jesus starts this movement that's going to change everything, he creates a learning community of 12. That's important. Why do you think he kept it so small? Because of what I've been saying. This is relationally driven. Did you guys know uh, it is difficult to get to know many more people real well than that? In that time. I mean, we've had groups here uh, that have blown up. When I have a group of 25 meeting at my house in my living room and half of them are new, it's very difficult for me to get to know those people as opposed to if it was a group of six. Because there's just a little bit of me to go around. And there's just a little bit of you to go around, right? Uh, We can only do what we can do. We're limited in our capacity. When you shrink it down, you're able to give focus to those people that really are there more than if it's a huge, massive group. This is why, uh, you know, megachurches a lot of times uh, just feel so cold to people. It's because when you go into a a room and and nobody really knows you, you you don't feel loved and you don't feel like you're given love, right? This size that Jesus chooses here is intentional. It's important for us to notice that he only chose 12 and not 1,200. Now, That makes sense when you think about the way he's operating here. Twelve guys, they're going to get all of me. I'm going to invest in them. And then I'm going to teach them to turn around and do that for twelve other guys. Now, if you sit down and do the math, if Jesus had started with twelve hundred, and then they turned around and, you know, each one of them reached one, you you do the math for that as opposed to these twelve guys go and then they get twelve the way that multiplies out is pretty phenomenal. 
Jesus' way is a lot more effective in the long run. In the short run, it doesn't look very impressive. He calls 12 guys to him. 12 teenage guys, most of them probably. Doesn't look very impressive. But it's Jesus' strategy for changing the world. And how did it work out? We're sitting here talking about it, right? We're sitting here sharing this tradition that was passed down to us from these guys. I'd say it worked out pretty good. Worked out pretty good. He has this small group of students. And then uh, Jesus' model carries over into the life of the early church. You know, we see this, uh, for instance, in, in Paul's instruction to Timothy for leading future churches. This is in 2 Timothy 2.2. This is at the end of Paul's life. I want to say this is Paul's last epistle before he was beheaded. He's an old man. He's in prison. He's writing to Timothy, who's a young man who he had spent a lot of time with. Uh, he had mentored Timothy. Timothy was one of his boys. Timothy and Titus, uh, they, they were Paul's boys. It's like he taught them how to do ministry, and then he sent them out. Um, so he's sending Timothy to Ephesus. Timothy's dealing with all kinds of garbage, but Paul's writing him here. And Paul's instruction is to take the teachings that you heard me proclaim and entrust them to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. I want you to see the rhythm here, guys. How did Timothy learn? He was with Paul. You want to know what he did with Paul? Guess what Timothy did with Paul? You're right. Guess what Paul spent a lot of his time doing? Walking. From city to city. Teaching. Guess who was with him on those journeys? Timothy. What do you think they did on the road? What do you think they did? They probably talked. Yeah. You see some similarities here? He's with him for a long time, period, two or three years, more than likely. And then he's sent out by him. And then what we see is Timothy's going to these churches that Paul had helped establish. And Timothy is now acting as Paul because Timothy has been poured into by Paul. He's been taught the scriptures. He's been taught how to deal with people. They spent time together. Do you think they just talked about the Bible when they were together? Did they just sit around and have church conversations like we think of? Man, they were doing life together. They were talking about everything. They were, they were, they were cutting up. They were having fun. Uh, Paul had a sense of humor. Dude had a biting sense of humor. He was probably fun to be around uh, when he wasn't getting beat up. He got beat up a lot. They knew each other really well, right? He sends him out. Paul's instruction to Timothy is, hey, you know that thing that I did for you? Go do that for others. You know that thing I did for you where I taught you how to follow Jesus? I taught you the scriptures. I built upon uh, the, the knowledge your grandma and mom who were faithful poured into you. I just sort of built on that and I helped you be this man and I laid hands on you and I blessed you for ministry and I got other people to rally around you and we built you up and you're going to do great things for the Lord. I'm going to send you out. You know that thing I did for you? Go do that for someone else. And so what we see is Timothy going into a really rough situation in a city like Ephesus that was full of paganism, that was full of ideas that were hostile to believers in Christianity. Timothy going in there and he's able to navigate working with this church in a very complicated and bad situation in Ephesus. Because Paul poured into him. And what he tells Timothy to do is I want you to notice... Take the teachings you heard me proclaim and entrust them to reliable people. Circle that word reliable. Entrust them to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. Whenever um, we're looking in the church here, you want to know the thing that I look for when I'm looking for leaders to develop? 
I'm looking for reliability. Uh, when I'm looking for someone that could potentially be an, an, the next church planter to send out, uh, or, or even just to lead a ministry. Guys, I have my eyes open. I'm, I, you, I have my eyes open for that stuff, as all of our leaders do, because we've been taught to do that. Okay? It's not, it's not because I'm so good at this. Everything that I do in the church, if I do anything that's good, it's because I learned it from somebody else. You know, it's because I learned it from somebody else. Um, it's because somebody poured into me. I, in my own life, have men that have been in my life since I became a believer. And they, I know Lynn Stringfellow, Gary Lambert, my dad, Jim Waddell, Robert Cox. Like, and I could keep naming names, but there are men that are like pillars of faith in my life that know me well enough that they can say whatever they want to, to me. And they know me very well. And sometimes we fight. Because they'll tell me something I don't like or that I don't agree with. And I am very prideful. And I, I argue too quickly sometimes, as some of you know. Uh, they put me in check. They keep me in check. I need men like that. I'm, I've got a strong personality. I need men in my life that can match it and that can tell me when I'm out of line. Paul was that for Timothy Timothy was that for others, but I want you to notice even Paul had a criteria. He said, you find reliable people to pour into. If I get a hint that someone is not reliable, I'm probably going to move on to the next guy uh, when it comes to who I'm choosing to focus on uh, as a leader. And reliability, guys, is integrity. Uh, it, is, it is really, really attitude and integrity. It doesn't matter if intellectually you are not the most gifted. It doesn't matter if you don't read well. Uh, it doesn't matter if you didn't graduate from high school. You know, a lot of the stuff we look at as qualified job applicants, that stuff doesn't matter in the kingdom of God. What matters in the kingdom of God is are you honest? Do you tell the truth? And do you have an attitude that's good? If you don't tell the truth, if you're not honest... Or if you become a baby, anytime somebody tries to correct you, that's not going to work out. That's not going to work out. Those will kill you. Um, and so reliability is huge. Honesty and just being able to, to be coached is huge. And then to be able to do the job is huge. So what is my part? If I want to be one of those people that can develop and develop others, well, my part is I connect with my small group. <coughs> Excuse me. We do small groups here. Um, we call them cell groups here at the church. This is part of how we're structured at the crossings. Uh, we do that intentionally because of what I've pointed out all morning here, that church is relationally driven. Uh, we, we meet here on Sundays we have kind of this production that we do on Sundays, really because of the culture that we're in. Uh, this is expected in the United States. If you're a church, then you meet on Sundays, you have a building, you have people to come to. If we don't have these things, people will get suspicious. Like when we were meeting in the hotel. How many of you guys invited people to church? And you're like, where do I come? Come to the hotel. Is it a cult? Did anybody hear that? Okay, I heard that more than once. Some were joking, some were serious. Uh, there's a suspicion that's there. So we, we do some of the things we do the way we do them here because it's going to help us connect with people better than if we did them a different way. Okay, so some of this is cultural. But guys, the, the stuff we do in the church that is culturally conditioned is not spiritual. You know, it's more practical. We get together here, but to be honest, this big group, this is not practical for me getting to know you and you getting to know me and you guys getting to know each other. It just doesn't work. What does work is getting together with a smaller group of people around the table where you can share a meal and you can learn where they come from and what their story is and what's going on that week in their life and how work is going and you know, why Susie Q next door won't shut up and quit yelling at 3 a.m. You, know, you want to hear that kind of stuff with your friends, and that's what it should be. It's a group of friends. It's a group of family. 
where you get to know one another well enough where if one of you stinks, you say, hey, you stink, right? It's like that. But that happens when the, when the groups are smaller. It doesn't happen when there's 100 of us. It happens when there's 12 of us. You guys see how this works? It's relationally driven. So you need to connect with your small group. We have intentional learning communities. We call them cell groups. We get this idea from the early church, guys. In, in, in the early, earliest expression of church in Acts 2, 46 through 47, every day, this is talking about the believers now, they continue to meet together in the temple courts. There's the big meeting. So not, big meetings are not bad. Okay, we have the big meeting. Well, they had big meeting too, temple courts. But in addition to temple courts, they broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And if you keep reading a couple of chapters later, there's that line of from, from that time on, from house to house, they never stopped sharing the word of God. That's just a little bit after this, okay? Um, this is the early church. We do learning communities and small groups at the crossings because it's what we see in the early church. It is how the gospel spread in the early church in this relationally driven movement where you had this groups of friends meeting together in homes, talking about Jesus, following Jesus, calling people to, to, to do that together. It's what we see, okay? It is the assumption, it is the assumption in the early church that every single member is part of a learning community. And I say learning community, I really just mean church. But it is, the, it is the expectation that every single person is part of the community of the church. There's not a case made necessarily in, in the Bible for why you need a church. Because it was just assumed if you're a disciple, you are in the church. They didn't have to make a case for it. They didn't have people running around saying, uh, it's just me and God. I just need my Bible and God and that's it. I don't, I, don't need, I don't need any of that other stuff. They didn't have that because it wasn't a thing. It was just, they go together. Like if you're following Jesus, you're part of his, the group of people that are following Jesus. You guys are all lumped together. Like that's how it worked. In Hebrews 13, the closest thing we have um, uh, actually comes from Hebrews where it tells us don't give up meeting in community. Uh, so that is there. Uh, I like the way Eugene Peterson puts this about Leadership in Hebrews 13, verse 7 and 17 says, Be responsive to your pastoral leaders. Listen to their counsel. They're alert to the condition of your lives and work under the strict supervision of God. Contribute to the joy of their leadership, not its drudgery. Why would you make things harder for them? The assumption here in Hebrews from the Hebrew writer is that you're part of a church. It's the assumption. You're part of a church. The assumption is if you're a disciple, you have spiritual leadership in your life. Okay, that's the way it works. Now, we live in an age where people can, can find out about Jesus on, on the internet or, or through the Bible. There, there's a lot of people that are pursuing a relationship with God who don't, who've never heard this before. Okay, but I just got to say, God can work however he wants to. God, God can move in, in the hearts of men and women. He can save whoever he wants to. He can operate however he wants to within the boundaries of his holiness as he sees fit. He can do what he wants. He's God. But the way God set this up to work is if I want to follow Jesus, I'm going to be with people that also are following Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, it's just everywhere. And that's the assumption in the Bible. It's, it's not even something they have to beat the drum on all the time. Go to church, go to church, go to church. It's, they don't have to because you're in the church. Right? It's just a thing. Thirdly, a healthy church equips me to share my faith by, number three, providing examples to follow. By providing examples for me to follow. Jesus says in John 13, 15, I've given you an example that you should follow. Now, he says that to his disciples right after he had washed their feet. And he's giving them an example of what it looks like to be a servant. In that instance, he specifically says, I'm giving you an example. Follow my example. He said it in that situation, but honestly, he could have said it of his whole life. Because he was constantly setting an example. Jesus never once calls anybody to do something he didn't demonstrate. Did you guys know that? Every command in the Bible, every single command, you can go back and look if Jesus demonstrated the fulfillment of it in his life. Every single thing Jesus asks us to do, he did himself. 
even laying his life out, guys. He laid his life down. He did it for us, right? He set an example. The effect of being with Jesus and following his, his example was also greatly evident in Acts 4. Um, after they found, this is talking about uh, some Jewish leaders, the, the apostles got in trouble. And so they're brought before these Jewish leaders in this trial sort of situation. And it says, after they, the Jewish leaders, found out that Peter and John had no education or special training, they were surprised to see how boldly they spoke. They realized that these men had been with Jesus. Okay? I want to point out, these educated judges in this formal assembly that are legally making accusations against Peter and John are impressed by these dumb fishermen. Peter and John, dumb fishermen quote-unquote, um, because they were so bold and, and forthright in their answers. And they realized they didn't go to Harvard or Yale or Oxford. They had just been with Jesus. Jesus has an effect when you have a relationship with him. When you are close to him and you know the man, he has an effect. He has an effect in a way that's evident to others. They see it. Just like these guys saw it. It's not about education in a traditional sense so much as it's about becoming like Jesus in character. And becoming like Jesus in boldness. And becoming like Jesus in wisdom. That's really what it's all about. In the church, Jesus is our ultimate example. But God's design is that in the church... You have other examples to look at as well. That I have other examples to look at as well. That I can be an example and you can be an example for others. That you can be that person for somebody else. That's the way it was set up. You say, well, how do I participate in that? Well, I appreciate and imitate my leaders. How can I be a good example? I appreciate and imitate my leaders. And I'm not saying that because I'm in church leadership, right? It can sound arrogant for a church leader to get up and say that. I'm just repeating what's in the scriptures, okay? Honestly, I wish it didn't say this because it puts more pressure on me. The, what's presented in scripture is a leader should be able to come along and grab somebody by the hand and say, hey, let's go follow Jesus. If you want to know what it looks like, just look at what I'm doing. Do what I do. Come on, let's do this. Do what I do. This is a command of the Bible, Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. If you imitate every single thing about a fallen human being... You're going to get in trouble because you're going to imitate their flaws. Every single one of us are flaws, flawed. We need, to have the, we need to have the capacity to see our leaders through the lens of grace sometimes. One of the things, especially young Christians, can, one of the traps you can fall in is after you become a believer and you start learning some things, uh, you will very quickly see that the person leading you is not perfect. You will very quickly see that the person leading you makes mistakes. You will very quickly see that the person leading you, you know, sometimes they say to follow this book, and sometimes I see in their life they're not following it very well in this area or this area, right? You spend time with somebody, and you're going to see that. One of, the, one of the things Satan will try to do, especially to young believers, is he will try to get you to demonize your leaders, as you, as you start to learn and as you start to see their flaws, you will, you will start to pridefully think that you know how to do this Christian thing better than they do. And it will derail you because the people that God has put in your life to shepherd you, Satan will get in there and he will find a way to seize upon your sin and your pride and disconnect you from those people that God has put in your life to bless you. And he will do it under the guise of your justifying it. 
because you know better and they're not worth listening to because of this, this, and that. That's just Satan is all that is. Don't do that. Don't demonize your leaders. You guys need to understand in the church, you're going to have people that are jacked up that are trying to help you. You guys know how messed up I am? I'm not trying to be funny. I am messed up. I would put my story and the crap that happened to me up against any of you guys, and I'll bet you I would win in terms of the crap that has happened to me. I grew up getting raped. You want to talk about somebody with issues. I grew up getting raped. I got on drugs when I was young. I almost killed myself with addiction. <laughs> I am jacked up. You think I don't have some baggage? Like, I'm in a much healthier place now than I was 20 years ago. Guys, I'm still jacked up. I still struggle emotionally. I struggle with depression. I struggle with crazy thoughts sometimes. I have to deal with situations that are really, really stressful sometimes in ministry, like here, stuff you don't hear about that I've got to deal with behind the scenes. It's horrible sometimes. And I've got a lot on my heart and my mind. And then somebody comes along and says something. Like last week, I kind of snapped at Alameda. I had to go back and apologize to him later. So there was some stuff on my heart that, uh, you know, I'm messed up. And if you spend any semblance of time with me, you're going to see real quick I'm messed up. You're going to see real quick that uh, there's stuff in my life that shouldn't be there. I acknowledge that. Like, I know that. You're going to see typos on notes sometimes. Like, you're going to see, you're going to see my mess if you spend any time with me. You guys have got to be graceful with those that are trying to lead you. And... Um, and I say that because I need your grace, but there are a lot of developing leaders in here that need your grace as well. And guess what? You're going to need it sometimes. But that's part of being in a family is we, we screw up, we give each other grace, but just because somebody screws up doesn't mean they can't be a good example for you of spiritual leadership. And man, we just got to remember that because I really think I really think the devil will get in there and he'll try to get you away from those people that are going to help you sometimes. And the way he'll do it sometimes is because he'll just make you mad at them. And then he'll get you to justify it. And then you'll not have a relationship anymore. And five years down the road, when you could have been doing some amazing things in the kingdom of God, you're still sitting on your couch eating Cheetos. Because you let the devil get in there and make you mad and justify it. Don't do that. God puts you in community so that you can have examples. You've got to get in there and, and you've got to get involved. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That means you can imitate how they deal with their weaknesses too. When they screw up and repent, do that. Follow that example. Just because somebody ain't perfect doesn't mean you can't learn from their example. And what a good leader is going to do is when they screw up, they're going to repent. And what you need to do when you screw up is you need to repent. And that's a good example. You don't have to be perfect. 2 Timothy 3, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, persever perseverance, persecution, sufferings. Again, that is Paul talking to Timothy. Uh, he's just... I put that in there because he is continuing this teaching uh, that, hey, you follow my example. Timothy even followed Paul's example in suffering, which is not great news for us, right? You got to follow that example. He stood up for it. Last thing, we'll close with this. A healthy church equips me to share my faith by, number four, presenting me with opportunities. By presenting me with opportunities. It says in Ephesians 5, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. Please underline making the most of every opportunity in that. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Making the most of every opportunity. It says in Colossians 4, 5 and 6, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Can you underline that, please? Make the most 
of every opportunity. There's two times that phrase is used. Make the most. And here it's explicitly linked to uh, evangelism. Uh, let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, when this says make the most of every opportunity, one of the things I notice in the scriptures is that often when it comes to reaching out and it comes to evangelism and sharing faith in the church, they created their own opportunities. They would go into a city. Uh, they would go to a festival. They would go somewhere where there's people. And they would start rubbing elbows with those people. In Acts 17, Paul went to the Areopagus, which is uh, in, in, in Athens. It was a forum where philosophers would get together and debate about ideas. Well, what a great place for a Christian teacher to go, where I can go and there's going to be a ready audience for me to listen to me talk about Jesus. And he comes in there and he speaks to these Athenian scholars about Jesus and a bunch of them become Christians. He, he took an opportunity and made the most of it. We see them go into places like Ephesus that's having uh, the, the, this parade to Artemis. We see them uh, share there. We see them uh, even in bad situations sometimes where they made people mad and a group of people would congregate. They would take that as an opportunity to share with that group that was there. They made the most of every opportunity. Jesus often created opportunities. He would come into a town and start healing and suddenly the town is coming out and there's a crowd of people and it's a big to-do, right? He took advantage of the opportunity. Here at the crossings, we create opportunities. You guys know uh, we do a lot of events here. Um, do you guys know why we do those events? We do Spooktacular, which is a big Halloween party that we do here in the parking lot. We do uh, block parties. We do uh, parties in our homes. Like last week, we did Super Bowl parties. Uh, we do, uh, like I do a Christmas party. We do a big white elephant gift exchange at my house every year. It's a lot of fun. Uh, they have spa nights for the ladies. A bunch of the guys. We're taking a bunch of men. We're going to go uh, camping out and frog gigging and rappelling later a couple months. Why are we doing that stuff? We're creating opportunities. We're creating opportunities. We are creating opportunities for you to make a new friend with somebody that doesn't know Jesus. That's what it's for. We ask our members to participate in those things. In fact, uh, Whenever, whenever somebody decides to join the church, uh, this is one of those things we talk with them about. There's an expectation here that you're going to be part of a small group and you're going to be part of our church events. When we're doing church events, you need to participate. Why? Because of this passage right here where it says we need to make the most of every opportunity. If I know that my Christian friends are getting together for a gathering and they have invited their non-Christian friends to come to that gathering so that we can get to be friends. And I choose to stay home. Is that taking advantage of the opportunity that I have? Okay, am I thinking about those lost people that I could impact? But I get a nap, right? Sometimes the nap is what I want more in my selfishness. Honestly, if I'm just honest about it, that's what I want more. But is that what Jesus would do? No, that's not really what Jesus would do. You know, what, what we see him doing is he is going out of his way. Guys, even, even when... I remember those times when he was trying to get away from the crowds. Like if you read the Gospels and they just kept coming. And he hadn't slept for like 24 hours. And they just kept coming. And he eventually stops running away from them. And he just continues. He just continues exhausted. It's one of the things I love about that, that show, The Chosen. Have you guys seen The Chosen? Because it shows stuff like that. It shows how exhausted he must have been. Right? But he did it. Uh, that's an opportunity. And I just want you to think about that. If you are investigating joining the Crossings Church, uh, this is one of those things that you, you need to think about. We've got to take advantage of opportunities to love on people. And if our church is getting together to intentionally do that, if you're a part of the church, you need to be part of that. Uh, and so I just want to encourage you to think about that and to see it through this lens. We need to make the most of every opportunity. So spectacular Super Bowl parties, movie nights, trivia nights, spa nights, UFC parties, the marriage retreat, men's retreat, ladies retreat, church camps, 
There's always stuff going on. I want to encourage you guys to participate, not for any other reason than to honor God and to go and rub elbows with people and love people. Make a new friend. Why is that so important? Because it's through those relationships that God works. And if you're not intentional about creating those relationships, you are shortchanging God's work through you to bless another person. And there is not a better high than seeing God use you to bless another person. You don't know what you're missing. You need to be intentional about it, though. My role in this is I need to become more like Christ. At the end of the day, if this is an area of struggle for you, the transition is I need to be more like Jesus. I need to love people the way Jesus says to love people. It's important, guys. You have something to give. Some, some people just think they don't have anything to give. They don't think they're good enough. They don't think they're smart enough. Every one of you has love to give somebody. You have love to give somebody. You have love to give somebody. You may not teach them to be a Bible scholar, but you can love them. And let me tell you what, guys. In 50 years, none of you in here are probably going to remember exactly what I said to you. You might remember one thing or two things, but in 50 years, you are not going to remember what I said. But what 100% of you are going to remember is how I treated you and how I am to you. And if I was cold to you, you're going to remember that. But if I was loving to you and kind to you, you're going to remember that. Even if you don't remember anything that I said. You have love to give, and that love and that kindness will have an impact that will not go away. Don't shortchange yourself in thinking that you have to be like your neighbor or exactly like somebody else that you think is a really good Christian to bless people. You just need to be able to love people, okay? That's what Jesus is like. Our passage we're working out of, Ephesians 4, Christ chose some of us to be apostles, prophets, missionaries, pastors, and teachers so that his people would learn to serve and his body would grow strong. This will continue until we are united by our faith and by our understanding of the Son of God. Then we will be mature just as Christ is. We will be completely like him. That is the end goal. That is the result of equipping. That is what happens when we're faithful to these things that we're talking about. The end goal is we become like Jesus. 